ASN thanks Otska America Pharmaceutical Inc. for support of this podcast. Hi, I'm Catherine Godson. I'm co-chair of Kidney Week 2022 along with um, Dr. Kirk Campbell. And I'm joined here this afternoon to talk about some of the key events from uh, day three of this year's Kidney Week. I'll let my colleagues introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Orlando Gutierrez. I'm a nephrologist and the director of the Division of Nephrology at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. And hi, I'm Josh Waitsman. I'm a nephrologist and junior faculty member at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. Okay, great. So how about let's get started. What was the most exciting thing for you in the past few days? Orlando. Well, this gives me an opportunity, I think, to, to brag a little bit about some of the work being done at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, and in particular, um, the, the work done by um, Jamie Locke, uh, who's our uh, chief of transplant surgery, um, as well as a number of our transplant nephrologists in, in really pushing the envelope of xenotransplantation. Um, you know, it was a really uh, important advance in the field uh, to show that um, if you transplant uh, kidneys from pigs into um, someone who is a potential uh, deceased donor um, or, or someone who's, who has the potential to receive, I should say, a kidney uh, in the future, that, uh, that these kidneys are able to survive for a period of time and that they don't necessarily see uh, hyperacute rejection or other manifestations that would make it uh, more difficult for these kidneys to survive in the long term. And, um, the way they did it and the very careful nature of the way they did it and using all the same sort of techniques that were normally being used in a surgical setting, um, the same sort of immunosuppression and the same sort of care, uh, I think really advanced the field and, and I think um, is an important step forward in terms of uh, potentially solving a, a major issue with uh, kidney shortages. I think what's really great about that work is that it's the first published use of xenotransplantation for a kidney, and then what was great about a plenary session was unpublished data, and I feel like I never see that in a plenary. Um, so that she came and talked about these other two uh, trials of the xenotransplantation they've done since the original paper came out, and the real advances they've made in, in inhibiting complement and getting a- attacking these TMAs that they saw in the original case. Yeah, well, it was great to see the way they genetically edited the the, the kidney, and and she was she was so generous with how she described, you know, the, the the level of detail that that she went into it was great. And then this morning's plenary on uh, messenger RNA. I mean, really, can the message be delivered? Which I guess has always been the question. But <laughs> my goodness, it seems to be close to being answered. It was fantastic, wasn't it? It was incredibly cool, and I, I think. This I was Dr. Melissa Moore from Moderna. Right, who, yeah. who had had an academic career at UMass and then transitioned to Moderna maybe four or five years ago or so as, as chief scientific officer there. And I think thinking about the implications of mRNA as medicine beyond injecting it into a muscle and getting you a vaccine response to a spike protein, but instead being able to let you make cytosolic proteins to target anything inside the cell, um, and then turning people into your manufacturing vessel that it really makes these medicines much more scalable than biologic medicines. Those are angles I really hadn't thought about before. Yeah, and uh, well, you know, one thing I thought was really great was the way she kept referring back to the fact this was 60 years of basic research. It was people studying how do cells take things up, how does the innate immune response react, all of the, you know, the convergence of high-quality basic science and, and its application. And I hope all our funders are... You know, paying close attention because this is this is the payback for really careful and, and great work. It was really 
fantastic. Yeah, I think it's easy to get really excited about the implications of a technology, but I think seeing the curiosity-driven science, the fundamental insights into how processes work, and yeah. and also with um, with the Homer Smith lecture, how exactly. curiosity-driven physiology research drives advances in patient care. Absolutely, it was they were perfect uh, to say well, from one to the other. They, they were really great. Um, and I thought um, that it's really interesting that they're going to go after sort of more orphan diseases because that, that seems to be a really appropriate thing to do. And I suppose that, that, that would be relevant to a lot of kidney diseases. I think so. I think we're yeah. seeing the uh, monogenic ones a lot. Well. Yeah. And, and a lot more interest in the kidney space because of changes in the, the types of endpoints that, mm -hmm. that the FDA is looking at Absolutely. for those medicines. And I think seeing successes of things like SGLT2 inhibitors and MRAs and hopefully GLP-1 RAs um, is going to encourage a lot more investment in the kidney space and purely to these more rare orphan-type diseases. Yeah, and I think coupled to that is the development of there. There's so many, I went to several biomarker talks, and there's so many you know dynamic biomarkers that will show responsiveness that I think it's a, it's a great time. Mm -hmm. Orlando, the clinical trials. Well, it was a, uh, as every year seems, it was a, it was an incredible um, trial session. Uh, a, a lot of really important results that came out. Um, I think the one that was probably the the um, the most anticipated was the ampagliflozin in, in patients with with chronic kidney disease, and I, I think it's important for a couple of different reasons. One, um, it was one of the the trials which was looking at whether this whether the use of this particular therapeutic was as relevant in terms of its therapeutic effects in non in, in individuals without diabetes as it was in individuals with diabetes and and also individuals who didn't necessarily have proteinuria mm -hmm. as well as people who had proteinuria so really pushing the envelope of, of who are the individuals for which this is most relevant to and, and can we start using this uh, in a much more broad fashion than we're currently doing and and as I think uh, we saw during the trial and certainly in the New England Journal of Medicine paper that was released at the same time the, the medication was incredibly efficacious mm -hmm. across all these different subgroups. Um, it was, in my mind, there was clearly a trend toward it being a little bit better efficacious in people with diabetes, but nonetheless, even in the non-diabetes arm, there was still um, benefit there, uh, which was yeah. very encouraging. And, and similarly, while it seemed to have be a little bit more efficacious in people who had um, high degrees of proteinuria, even in those who had very low, there was, there was evidence of efficacy. So. Um, you know, I was, as I was sitting there reviewing all this and looking at this and just thinking about uh, how this is going to change my practice sure. and, and all the patients who come to me and say, what can I do? Can we do something differently to preserve kidney function? You know, this is, this is really something that's going to change what we do, I think. So how many uh, years dialysis-free do you think it will make? I mean, it, economically, from a pharmacoeconomics point of view, it must make a lot more sense for people to be able to take these drugs than to go on dialysis, but hopefully that message will filter through. Absolutely. So to speak. And, and I think some of the studies that are coming out that are that uh, are starting to ask those questions is is, you know, the, the cost effectiveness analysis Absolutely. here. Because up front it's gonna cost more to get people the medications, but on the back end when you keep people from going on dialysis, yeah, this is there's gonna be major cost savings. Yeah. yeah. I, I do feel like I'm seeing it get a lot easier to get these medicines to patients, to get insurance coverage, to get the medicines started than I think it was even three or four years mm -hmm. ago. And I think especially for, like, like Orlando had said, for the non-proteinuric or very mm -hmm. minimally proteinuric CKD patients I see, 
I've been waiting for this trial to come out for months. Like they stopped the trial in July, I think, because of oh, overwhelming efficacy. And we just I've been writing in my notes like empa kidney has been stopped for overwhelming efficacy. I can't have a risk benefits conversation with my patient yet, but I really want to soon, as soon as we have these results. Sure. And so now because we see this at least decrease in the rate of GFR decline in these less albuminuric patients, mm -hmm. I at least feel like I have something to offer to people who I didn't really have much to offer to before. And what do you think it tells us about how they work? You know, that they work so well in non-diabetic patients. I mean, it's a big question, isn't it, from a mechanistic perspective, but, you know, mightn't have been expected or anticipated. Yeah, I, th I think Absolutely. some of that is hopefully reducing hyperfiltration, just like we think yeah. ACE inhibitors sure. work. And then some of it is certainly metabolic changes that I mm -hmm. know there are a lot of people who are smarter than me about. But I think I'm looking forward to more kidney weeks where we find out more about how these these magical medicines work. Yeah. But, but, but to that point, I mean, hopefully um, this dispers people to, to look at the, particularly the, the, the issues that you're, as Justice was mentioning, of the metabolic function, mitochondrial function in the proximal tubules, yeah. all those sorts of things that, that people might just say, well, you know, Roland Blanche is right. If you if the the this is all tubular glomerular feedback and so forth, and 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 that's how this works. Well, well, maybe there's something more than that that we really need to understand better. But I suppose it's not all over yet. Yep. You know, that's the other thing we have to remember. It hasn't cured diabetic kidney disease. It it hasn't. It hasn't. And um, you know, I think one of the things that, um, that when we think about along those lines is you know who gets diabetic kidney disease, and it's and it's a uh, you know certainly the the populations who have um, uh, who have who lack access to healthy foods, who lack access to healthcare, um, and who are some of the most vulnerable populations. And we oftentimes develop a literature and uh, examine disparities and and demonstrate that they're there and comment about how, how bad they are, but very few people are on the front lines of actually trying to do something Exactly, about it. exactly. And so I really wanted to commend uh, Dr. Deirdre Cruz and her uh, group in um, testing an intervention um, mm -hmm. to provide individuals in the Baltimore area with um, healthy foods um, and, and some education in terms of how to prepare those foods um, to see whether that can improve um, their, their primary outcome was albuminuria but then they also looked at blood pressure and a few other outcomes. And on face value, it, it, the study didn't show efficacy. It didn't meet its primary endpoint of reducing albuminuria, but um, it, it, it nonetheless, it, it certainly increased potassium intake, mm -hmm. which we know is important for blood pressure control. Um, and if you squint hard enough, you can see that albuminuria was certainly trending in the yeah. right direction, and it maybe and was underpowered a little bit. Um, but we need to do more of these studies. Absolutely, yeah, like documenting inequality as opposed to intervening seems really right. unsatisfactory. Yeah. Right. I think there are a lot of really well-meaning interventions, but seeing this intervention be cost-effective, scalable, and work, even though the top-line results may, be, may show a non-significant p-value between the two groups, the before to after the intervention of giving people healthy foods and giving them weekly dietary counseling that was a significant decrease in albuminuria, mm -hmm. um, and the control group was probably better care than the current standard of care that we're able to offer patients. Mm -hmm. So I think bigger behavioral and social and economic interventions that we're able to take on, the more we can come in with the ammunition to support sure. the case for that, the better off we are as a field. And just proves the feasibility of that approach. Yeah.
One other trial that I think caught my attention, just because of it, it, it it's it's more so the the uh, it can teach the field about the feasibility of doing trials, and that was the the um, personalized cooler dialysis for patients receiving maintenance hemodialysis, and this is um, by Dr. Garg and his group in Canada. The, the trial was um, uh, a total of about fifteen thousand patients in Canada who were randomized to uh, two different goals in terms of their dialysis temperature, trying to address a a, a question that many of us struggle in, in both the inpatient and outpatient setting, which is if you dialyze someone with a little bit cooler dialysis, can you in, improve uh, their cardiovascular profile so they tolerate dialysis a little bit better, and then ultimately that may have, that may redound to their benefit in terms of cardiovascular outcomes. Um, and at the end of the day, um, the, the trial, which is a pragmatic trial, uh, randomized 84 centers uh, to um, participate in this study. What they found is there's no difference in terms of the, of the uh, uh, key outcomes of, of cardiovascular-related death or hospital admission for cardiovascular reasons between the two groups, um, which I think, even though it's a, you know, you could label it a negative trial, is still useful because it answers a clinical question that many of us were considering, uh, and it shows the ability to do a really large trial on a pragmatic basis in, in, in patients on hemodialysis. So um, I, I thought that you know, kudos to Dr. Karg and his group for, for doing that. Great. The one other trial I think I want to make sure folks take a look at um, was the STOP-ACE trial, um, which was a late-breaking abstract but wasn't presented in the oral session, okay. um, but had a New England Journal paper come out at the same time the poster came out. Uh, and so that was looking at the use of ACE inhibitors in CKD4 and CKD5 and randomizing patients to stopping the ACE inhibitor versus continuing. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of the times when we have these patients with advanced CKD, we have other specialties that may remain nameless that are encouraged or nervous about the creatinine getting higher and higher and sure. want to see it go down and want us to stop the ACE inhibitor so mm -hmm. it does. And what the trial showed was at least um, no benefit on the rate of progression to ESRD or uh, to the rate of, of initiation of dialysis or the rate of GFR decline when you stop the ACE inhibitor um, and a, a trend toward protection by continuing the ACE inhibitor uh, in those patients. And so I think it's more argument that these medicines that we really feel like we should know everything about by now, ACE inhibitors have been around forever, um, we still find out more about how protective they are as a foundation yeah. therapy for us, and then building on top of those with these other medicines, the SGLT2 inhibitor mm -hmm. medicines, and these other classes, as well as lifestyle interventions and social interventions to make sure that people get access to healthcare, healthy food, and healthy environments. I think that's a multidisciplinary approach we can all get behind. And then there was a, a more high-tech one, which was interestingly also uh, using RNA. Uh, I the Chem, chem to siren, the mm -hmm. IGA nephropathy. I mean, it, it was it was a small, it was a small it, yeah, place too, but pretty interesting. I mean, certainly it reduced uh, levels of complement five by C five by ninety eight point seven percent. So it was encouraging and, and interesting, given that we had to talk about yeah, mRNA as, it's, as it's medicine earlier. Cool to see these RNAs moving into clinical practice. And what would be nice to imagine is that they have longer efficacy than short-acting pills that we take or every so often infused medicines, but could last for quite a while and allow us to have patients get better control of disease. As far as I'm concerned, it's been fantastic to be here. It's been brilliant to, to meet up with old friends and, and 
to be really stimulated by, by listening to talks and realising, oh God, I better go back. I think we saw that. For example, um, listening to the olfactory receptor talk um, that the um, Donald Selden Young Investigator Award, I suddenly realised that we had seen a whole load of olfactory receptors being upregulated in more seq data and hadn't really taken it seriously, so we need to go back and re-examine it. So it's been very um, thought-provoking for, for me, at, at least. I've certainly really enjoyed it. Yeah, I think seeing these fields develop from the last in-person kidney week to now, the omic session was incredible on Thursday, watching these advances in these high computational power techniques. Yeah. And and like you had said, Catherine, I think that the just the, the joy of all being together and, and the I, I know they talked about this in one of the earlier podcast episodes, the serendipity of running into people from other parts of your kidney life. It's yeah. really wonderful, and I think we'd really miss that as a field, and, and I certainly missed it as a person. And also, I think it is a particularly nice, welcoming field, and uh, I was also really impressed by the number of people that, they weren't throwing their hands up in despair, but they were saying, I've got this far, but in some of the basic science sections, I've got this far, but I'm really stuck on, somebody was using organoids to try and model diabetic kidney disease, and they could get so far, but they couldn't get responses to drugs or whatever, and it was just really refreshing a feeling that people were really coming together to try to answer the challenges. And it just goes to, uh, just to emphasize those points, uh, it's those conversations you have in the side halls and on the, a- after the, the formal presentations in which you can kind of compare notes, um, discuss where, yeah. uh, where you are, um, exchange information that, you know, that's, those are the aspects of moving the field forward that it's are so critical to, to come in these sorts of meetings. And um, for those who were only able to join virtually this year, um, I hope it's okay if I can say, please uh, plan on being in person next year. Uh, yeah, I, I, I would agree. I and think and uh, we missed you. Yes, yeah. well, oh, you're, <laughs> you're a nice inside. guy. <laughs> we did, we did. Okay, thank you. ASM thanks Otska America Pharmaceutical Inc. for support of this podcast.